You're listening to Backstage at Lyric, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes at Lyric Opera of Chicago. Backstage at Lyric features in-depth interviews with singers, conductors, and creative talents at one of the world's great opera companies. For additional podcast interviews, subscribe to our RSS feed or visit us online at lyricopera.org. Bass baritone Kyle Kettleson and conductor Alain Altino-Glu are backstage at Lyric. It's kind of a caricature to begin with because you just you walk out and you, you pose and preen and say, look at me and you're the rock star. And for me, it's always a little embarrassing as this Midwestern kid up there, you know, and, 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 I'm, and I, want, I want everyone to know it's just, it's just the character. It's just the character. And so I, I try not to make it um, overly... I try to make it as real as possible within its own existence. For me, the aim is to show what the composer wanted. I mean, it's the main thing. But the music is so wonderful that even if you know the music, it's like if it was the first time for me each time. The the, the orchestration, the singers are different, and it's so complex that each time you can find new things. And I think even for the audience, in the drama, in the music, you can hear, even if you know the 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 melody, the tunes. Thank you for downloading this episode of Backstage at Lyric. I'm Roger Pines of Lyric Opera of Chicago. We'll be playing an audio transcript of the Lyric Opera Discovery Series session for Bizet's Carmen. For those of you who may not be aware of the Discovery Series, it's panel discussions featuring singers, conductors, directors, and opera experts. We do one session per opera, and they usually take place a few days prior to the opening of each production. The Discovery Series is open to the public, and it's a great way to get up close and personal with our artists. You can check out our website at lyricopera.org for dates, tickets, and complete Discovery Series information. We include all of the Discovery Series sessions as part of the Backstage at Lyric podcast. And now, on to the Discovery Series panel devoted to Carmen, with American-based baritone Kyle Kettleson, who's returning to Lyric to portray Escamillo, one of his signature roles in Major Houses Internationally, and French conductor Alain Altino-Glu, principal conductor of the Orchestre National de Montpellier, who made his Metropolitan Opera debut last season, conducting Carmen. These two wonderful artists have a great deal to contribute to our audience's understanding of one of the most popular works in the repertoire. I'm the moderator for this session, and I hope you enjoy it. I'm always curious as to where our guests have heard the particular work that they're doing for us for the first time. So do you remember, both of you, where you heard your first Carmen? Live Carmen, not a recording, but oh. when did you hear your first performance I was going to say Gilligan's Island. They, had a, they did a... <laughs> Neither a lender nor a borrower we do not forget, <laughs> stay out of debt. <laughs> but the first live... Boy... I don't know. Okay, I, so first I have to apologize for my English because I'm French. So I was born in Paris, and I think my first comment, I was six years old in Paris Opera. So I saw my first comment very early. Usually a child, I think, singing, singing this piece, for the first time all they remember is when he stabs her at the end. Is that what you remember? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> no, I was very jealous of the children first. I wanted to sing the part of the children on stage. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And now Mas, my son is jealous, he's five, so <laughs> he wants to sing it. And uh, I think I was much more marked by the children chorus in, in Carmen Van Carmen or Don Jose or Escamillo. I don't remember Escamillo. Yeah? Yeah, I think that was Escamillo. <laughs> well, he doesn't have a whole lot of music, really. He kind of walks in and does his thing and leaves. <laughs> <laughs> we so often forget with this piece that it did originate not with Bizet, but with the novella by Prosper Merimée. Now, I'm, I know that both of you have looked at Merimée. D- does it help at all? Because it's so, so different, it seems Of to course, me. it always helps to know the bra- background of an opera, any opera. I mean, uh, to, know, uh, to know Shakespeare, to know, all, you know, the, uh, the difference of, between Merimée and the opera Carmen is Merimée is much more violent much more violent. You can see that Don Jose kills people mm. and things that you don't see in the opera. 
And after that, uh, Bizet used Melac et Alevi, these two writers who wrote the, the libretto of Carmen, and they were used to write comic things with Offenbach, you know, like La Belle Hélène, uh, Orfeo aux Enfers. And they had to make this opera for l'opéra comique, which means that they had to do something funny. And uh, they were obliged. But Bizet really wanted to have Carmen. So that's why in Carmen you have the quintet and canto douanier, all these very light things, because he was obliged to have these things. And they tried to do something, a mixture between funny things and the violence of, of uh, Mérimée, the first book. But they could not be as violent as the book is because it, it was a kind of forbidden on a stage in the opera comic. You couldn't be so violent. You could in the Opéra de Paris, the over theater, but not in this one. It, doesn't Carmen in the Mérimée, doesn't she have a husband? Yes, yes, many things are, are very different. That was, but in, I think... In any opera, even when you do Don Quixote for Massenet or Carmen, it's good to know what was written before, but you have to forget it after, because if you always remember what was written before, it's not the opera, it's something else, you know. So it's good to know how it started and in the spirit of Bizet, but after you have to forget these mm. things, I think. Kyle, did you bother with Mary May particularly? I know that Escamillo isn't really <clears throat> part of it. Yeah, not so much for Escamillo, but it, it can add definite layers to, to your overall character. Um, but like the maestro said, you, you can only pay so much attention to a book or a play on which a hopper is based um, because, you, yeah, you have to take it for, for its, uh, for, uh, on its own as the opera. Um, what am I trying to say? You need to, it needs to stand on its own. And one should not have to uh, know about the origin of the story to enjoy the opera or to actually be an effective performer on the opera. But yeah, it does, it does definitely add subtle qualities to your character. Alain, at Lyric, very recently, we had the other important Bizet opera, The Pearl Fishers. Now, in Carmen... Do you hear progress that Bizet oh. <laughs> made over 12 yeah. years from the one to the yeah, other? Yeah, of course. I mean, he was 25 when he composed uh, Les Pêcheurs de Perles and four, uh, I mean, 36 when he composed uh, Carmen. Of course, there is a very, very big step. And the fact that Bizet died at 36 years old during the, the 33rd performance of Carmen, it's something so sad for the music because you could feel that after Carmen, maybe he would write something so wonderful. I mean, Carmen is a masterpiece. Of course, Les Pêcheurs de Perles is not at the same level, but you feel already all his talent for uh, written for the singers, the orchestration, but of course, there is a big step between Pêcheurs de Perles and Carmen, of course. So in Carmen, where do you think, do you, do you sense sort of where he was going um, in terms of of style? I mean, what was he trying to achieve in Carmen that you didn't think where you would think he would not have been capable of doing when he was that much younger? He found some, for example, he found some orchestration um, things that were not done before him and he didn't do before, like, for example, the last scene, the duet. I think he wrote the whole opera to go to the last duet, I mean, the duet between Don Jose Carmen, this so powerful duet. And in this duet, you hear backstage... Uh, the chorus singing the, the and you have the strings playing a contrepoint in the in the pit and this, this is something so incredible and he, he invented invented this for the opera so um, so he found uh, uh, also a mixture of of uh, the orchestration how to put uh, the flutes with the trumpets and everything you know so this thing and um, I was, as I said also before, how he managed to go from something light and comic to something more violent and more intimate in the opera. And this is uh, very difficult to, to do, I mean, as a dramaturge. Um, you understand my English? Or? Yeah, no yeah, problem. No problem. There is an awful lot of what I would call accumulated baggage with this opera. I mean, we all have seen it many, many times. There are traditions that are part of it that are not necessarily valuable traditions. They're just traditions. So I wanted to ask both of you, can you describe the sort of Carmen that in your individual roles in this production, can you describe the kind of Carmen that you're trying to avoid? Mm -hmm. <laughs> 
before we talk about the kind of karma that you want to do, what kind of karma do you not want to do? Kyle? (laughs) (laughs) Cracked high notes, that's the kind of karma I'd like to avoid. Um, Well, with a character like Escamillo, it's, um, it's kind of a character to begin with because you just you walk out and you, you pose and preen and say look at me and you're the rock star and uh, for me it's always a little embarrassing as this midwestern kid up there you know and and and, I'm, and I want I want everyone to know it's just it's just the character it's just the character and so I, I try not to make it um, overly what's the word I, I try to make it as real as possible within its own uh, existence um not not to make such a joke of of um, the rock star that he is, you know, the celebrity that he is. But you do it very well. Uh, sometimes, no, but, um, sometimes as Camus seems a caricature, you say, of himself, yes. and you know, the, the macho guy, and and I think that in every character, in every opera, you have both sides of uh, of a character, and you have to see that he's not only bad or only good or only. And Kyle. I think because he did also this role so many times, he's able to show all the les facettes, all the um, possibilities of, of the character. Now, from your point of view, Alain, as far as mm. the, the, the orchestral side, are there certain traditions? I mean, I know, I mean, I've listened to lots and lots and lots of Carmen recordings, and I find so often that mm. they're unsatisfying, and yet I know that, it, that for so many conductors, this is the way it has always been done. So it, what, as I say, going so, back to this question of, of the kind of karma that you want to avoid so, in terms of these traditions. I think my role uh, as a conductor is to show to people uh, what I think the composer wanted, which, which is interpretation, in fact. For that, I have a lot of things. I have the score. I go to the Bibliothèque Nationale, which is the French library, so I can see the first writing of Bizet, so I can compare to see if it's right or not right. I have also the teacher of the teacher of my teacher was Bizet, so also I am in a, in a kind of... A, yeah, so, and after you have to understand which tradition is good and which tradition is not good. And, you know, because I think you cannot say tradition is not good because there are some which are made in purpose... Uh, like some tr- some things were done during the rehearsals of of Carmen uh, by Bizet himself, so you can you know that it's okay. And some are made after him, and so uh, for these traditions, it's always difficult to know if you think that Bizet would uh, accept to do it or not accept to do it. And that's why for me it's always very important also to know very well the composers. I, I read a lot about themselves, the biography, so I know their character and how they accept. And the fact to have also worked with a lot of uh, live composers, you know, I do a lot of premieres, I understand better that uh, for a composer it's not so important, in fact, to know that this is a, a point here, a portamento here, but it's the spirit, the emotion of the piece which is the most important. So for, tra- for Carmen, there are some traditions, of course, um, for me it, it sounds like overacting or overplaying, you know, I think uh, Bizet is a French and he, he wrote an opera which is in Spain, but he never went in Spain, so it's a dream about Spain. So you have to... It's difficult to explain, because I'm French, so with a French style, and it's not an Italian opera, so you cannot also... For example, the tradition of some tenors, you know, who makes these very long notes all the time. <laughs> and, I mean, for me, sometimes it's a little bit too much in Carmen, or, you know, these uh, types of tradition. So I try to, to find the the right equilibrium, the right balance between these things. Now, you said that you went back to the Bibliothèque Nationale yes, to yes. look at what Bizet really wanted. Is there one edition that is, exists of Carmen that has everything that he wanted? Yes, no, the, the problem, uh, the best is Eulenburg. The edition was uh, copyrighted in 1992, which means that until 92, we didn't have a good, uh, good edition for Carmen. But you have to know that between the pre-dress rehearsal and the dress rehearsal in 1875, Bizet cut 35 minutes of music. It was too long. And after the premiere, even he cut things like at the premiere, you had the air de Morales at the beginning. Morales had an aria. They did for free performances, and he saw that it was not very good, so he cut it. And um, 
And the big problem for me, but, but maybe you will ask me later because it's always a question very important about the recitative in, uh, in Carmen because it's... Uh, can I answer to this question that you didn't we'll ask? We'll come yeah. to it a little After. bit. <laughs> <laughs> and um, what was saying? Yeah... Um, So the, the 35 minutes of music, so did any... Yeah, so he cut, and after he cut, so the, the problem is, what do you do now? Do you do what he first wrote, and or what he what he cut after? So what we do now, it's the the version that he did after the fourth performance. But it, it would be interesting one day to record everything he composed at the beginning. Like, for example, for Escamillo, he first wrote three verses, and oh. the third verse had to be sung by the core. But the chorus. And, uh, For the Torador song you're talking about. The Torador song. So the third uh, verse, the chorus had to sing everything. Da, 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 da. And uh, the, from the beginning. Uh, and it was too high for the chorus. So the chorus master asked to, to make it a, high, uh, a half tone lower. So it was in E major, in fact, in, in, instead of F. And during the rehearsals, they finally decided that it was too long. So they cut the third verse. So they kept this one. But there was a lot of music now for orchestra in E-Major. So Bizet, he kept this music just for the exit of Escamillo. That's why it's not in the same key than the, the aria. It's always, uh, so there are a lot of stories like, like that about Carmen. It's interesting, I mean, to know that. This piece uh, began to be recorded in the first decade of the 20th century, and it premiered only 25 years before that. So... With so much of the performance history of this piece being documented, I wanted to ask both of you if in your early years of getting to know this piece, were there any performances um, that you found particularly inspirational, performances that you would consider historically important that sort of gave you a sense of what the possibilities were in this I'm piece? I'm not sure about historically important, but um, one of my favorite singers is José Van Damme. And uh, I just love the way that he he did it. I paid special attention to him. And early on, I started I started studying this pretty early in my in my studies, in my vocal studies. And then I, I guess I first performed it in '99. And so I I didn't really listen to a lot of recordings, and I tend not to. I tend to get it down on on a recording of myself doing it, and I listen to myself over and over again, which is a great way to point out your own weaknesses and work on them, you know, work to improve, uh, you know, the role as a whole. Um, so but the, I do mention Van Damme because, uh, I admire his singing so much and what he can, what he does throughout the range. And, and it's what I aspire to do as well. And, and because this role especially is, is, is tricky because there are a lot of passaggio notes that aren't quite head voice. And that's the most difficult part for me. So, Um, but it's been a while since I've actually listened to a recording. Uh, I'm just too busy doing Escamillos every season, so I really don't want to listen to it much more. I'm trying to. I've lost track of the number of houses, but you've done it in, what, nine or ten at this point? Houses? Probably ten. Yeah. T twice here. It was my debut here ten years ago. In the student matinees. Student yes, matinees. Yeah. And then maybe... I don't remember if it's twice in another house, maybe 11 or 12 houses, something like that, and then three or four more coming up in the next six months. Wow, it's a lot of Toreador songs. Yep. <laughs> Alain, has there, been, has there been a particular interpretation that sort of left its mark on you, especially when you were much younger and starting to get to know the piece? Uh, yeah, probably, but... Uh... When, when you are young and you don't know the score, you just listen you know, to the music and you, are, you don't analyze and you don't know why you like, why you don't like. And after, when you work on the score, you really know what you want. And so it's different when I was 16 or now. It's very different. I don't know if I have any... I don't know. I, I know which recording I don't like, but which... Uh, <laughs> um, no. No, for example, the Callas one, who was a very famous uh, recording for me, is not a good recording of, of Carmen, for example. I love Callas, of course, but this one particularly. Uh, but um, no, I don't know. Maybe we will do one. <laughs> <laughs> no, but for, for the Escamillo, you know that Bizet, he, he used to be a coach before, so he knew the singers very well, and he composed the aria for the guy who had to sing That's why the range is so, so, because this guy, he had very, very low notes and he had very, very high notes. And so that's why he wrote for him. Because it's true that Escamillo, you, you never know if it's uh, written 
for a high, for bariton for a bass bariton you know because everybody sings it in fact and you need a voice like Kyle and it's not so often that you have somebody who is able to have these low notes and these high notes together and in preparing to do your first one Kyle or even after that after you had a certain number of performances under your belt did you feel that it was important to learn about the lives of bullfighters or can one get by in the role with just what you what Bizet and his librettists are giving you I always appreciated when we had a choreographer on a particular uh, production to help the movement um, because it is very specific specific action and movement when it comes to bullfighters. It's all very, uh, it's about pageantry and it's all very stylized and just the way they walk, you know, it's very machismo. And uh, about a year ago, well, uh, the summer of 09, I was doing it in Amsterdam and Robert Carsons was the director and he had everyone in the entire company, including nearly 400 of the uh, figurazzi, the um, supers, um, because the entire stage was a bullring and they were up there most of the show, watch a, uh, a bullfight. I, and I, whenever there was a, uh, what is it, coup de gras, I just had to, you know, look away. And you could tell it was coming because it was, they'd raise, the Torito would raise a sword to the bull and I'd just kind of look down and wait for the gasps and then look, look again. But it, of course, is, yeah, very, very um, useful to view the movements and try and emulate that, absolutely. What do you think his life is like when he's not before the public? We know that Carmen works in a cigarette factory. What does Escamillo do other than does he, other when he isn't fighting bulls? I don't know. It's hard to say if uh, the, the, the relationship between Carmen and Escamillo, Escamillo would last. It might be just another fling in this, in this celebrity's life. Of you know, He comes into a bar and is basically eyeing out every, all the women and seeing who he's going to take home. Um, so his home life, I don't know, I imagine it may be a little sad. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you think that, do you get the sense from the Toreador song and his other scenes that he's regarded by the public in, with sort of rock star status? Oh, yeah. Or the equivalent, the 19th century equivalent of rock star? Oh, yeah. And even now, bullfighters are... in are celebrities they're absolute stars so yeah it's he's like i said he's he's the celebrity he's the rock star now you've sung in spain and of course um as we were talking about before a frenchman composed it a frenchman mm -hmm. two frenchmen wrote the libretto but it is after all a spanish locale now you told me that you hadn't been to a bullfight in spain but does your having spent time in spain help you in any way with this piece, at least in, in a traditional production of Carmen, just that knowing what that ambiance was? Mm, not so much. Um, <laughs> uh, not, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't really say that, that that helps a great deal. I remember we, I did it in Madrid in, well, it doesn't matter, but the audience is there, um, and it's just like you say, it's a, it's a Frenchman's version of Spanish life, and the Spaniards, at least in Madrid, were not appreciative of this. They didn't like this Frenchman. Ah, they didn't like this Frenchman, you know, who didn't even know anything about Spain, really, uh, uh, on a personal level. And so my agent, before I went, he said, Now, Kyle, I have to warn you, you may get booed. I said, What? <laughs> And it was kind of a novelty. I thought, oh, it'd be fun to get booed, you know? But they, they booed the poor tenor every night. He was great, but they just, they, they don't appreciate, uh, yeah. they did not appreciate. The, the, I don't know how is the public in Chicago, but great. it's true that in the south of France and Spain, Italy, the public sometimes can be very, very, how to say, um, it's not easy for the singers sometimes. And, yeah. yeah. They really boo and very, oh, yeah. and sometimes during the show, I mean, it's. Um, <laughs> yeah. so, but you got a great hand from them. Then Kyle, right? Uh, you did get a great hand from them. I suppose I don't remember really. I think a lot of times it's Escamillo is kind of an also ran. They they see Escamillo come out for the curtain call, and say, "Oh yeah, he sang that song that we know." Okay, yeah, yeah. But, but it's just a, I know my place in the in the in the show. It's a it's a you know rather yeah. limited. In any production of Carmen, um, and I think the conductor has to go through an awful lot 
of thought as to which version he's going to do. Ah, not, this is the not, question. Yes, <laughs> not just but, not just with the dialogue, but but you know with these other things that you mentioned, because one can sort of pick and choose as to you know music that should be performed or maybe shouldn't be performed. But of course, the most important question is recitative versus dialogue, and what is your preference? Uh, for me, it's evident, evident uh, that you have to do Carmen as it was written for the opera comic, which means with spoken text and and the music. I mean, it's it's the original uh, spirit of the of the opera. I'm very sure of, of that. And but of course, uh, because the singers like thirty uh, years, forty years ago, sometimes they didn't speak French so well, you know. So sometimes it was maybe better to have the music recitative sung instead of having singers spoken in a very, very bad French, which would be ridiculous, you know. But I think the right version should be with the, with the spoken text. So I came here and it's a kind of revival, so I'm very pleased to conduct it. And, you know, we do the, the song recitative in this production. Uh, so I do it. And Giraud, who wrote the recitative, the, the, the music, was a student of Bizet, and he was very respectful of Bizet, and he did it in the spirit of Bizet, but he was not Bizet. And Bizet was already dead when Giro uh, did it. So, um, so if you ask me what is my favorite version, I would say with the spoken text. What does one miss in terms of content when you do the recitatives instead of the dialogue? What the does... problem when you do the recitative of Giro, Giro interpreted the spoken text, which means that sometimes, for example, in one recitative, uh, Don Jose sings, I love Michaela. Really, he sings, Je t'aime. And never Bizet or Halevi wrote that Don Jose loved Michaela. But it was in the imagination of Giro. He thought that, yeah, Don Jose loved. So, you know, he changed little things like that in the text, and which is not, I think, the right interpretation for this spoken text. And what you lose is the, the rhythm, you know, which is wonderful, is to have this spoken text. And, you know, and you are in the, in the heart of the theater, you know, when, uh, like actors, you know, you have to you listen and they have to act like actors. In fact, Bizet wanted really great actors. The first Carmen, Gaëlle Marie, was a bad singer. She was not a good singer. She was a much more good actress. Uh, not so good looking. Good looking, but I mean, not so much. <laughs> but uh, she, was, uh, she was crazy, totally crazy girl, you know. Uh, of course, when Bizet arrived with the first aria, she said, no, I don't sing this first aria. Because you know that at this period, the prima donna was much more important than the composer. And then, uh, I don't speak about the conductor, he didn't <laughs> exist, I mean, it was something. <laughs> but, uh, so she said, no, I don't want to sing this aria, it's not good. You have to write another aria for me to compose. And he had to compose, so he made 15 versions of the first aria, and she liked the 16th, which was the, <laughs> which was the habanera. In fact, she gave him the melody of the habanera. She had a book of Spanish songs, and she said, uh, uh, look in these books, you have uh, folk songs, Spanish folk songs. So he took one, which was da 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 di da da and very well, very bad harmonized and things, but he took, he took this one, and he did a lot of versions, and the six things, she said, okay, so she, she sang the first aria, and she said, so that's a good aria to begin the... the so the how many of those manuscripts of all of those different habaneras can we actually look at? I, I never found the first versions of the Banar. We all know the story because uh, we have the, everybody wrote during the rehearsals, you know, the letters between Melaka Levy and Bizet. So you, we, know that, we know that it happened, but I never found, I, I'm sure you can find somewhere, but I've never found the first versions of the, but for example, during the rehearsal, the tenor said, there is not enough high notes for me. So he added the B flat in the middle of the duet with Michaela. And so he was happy. So, but, um, so, but there are things that were composed by Bizet. So this is, uh, you, you have to do it. But, um, so yeah, many things happened during this uh, period of rehearsals. It was incredible. Now, Kyle, you, I assume, have done both versions, dialogue and you have done. How did you respond as a performer to doing the dialogue? Well, yeah. <laughs> I guess I prefer the dialogue because I've done it much more often. But now with the rest, it, it's, as Alain said, it's, it's safer. 
you know. And no, and of course, I have to say that here in Chicago, when I see the hall, it's I mean, it's so big. It's like it's a four thousand seat or something like that. I mean, of course, it's huge. Opera Comique, if you, I don't know if you know Opera Comique in Paris, it's a very, very, very little theater. So you can speak without forcing right. on the voice. When you are in a theater of 4,000 seats, when you start to speak, you have to not yell, but you, you have to speak very loud, yeah. which is not very good for the acting too, you know, because when you act, ah, you know, so it's, uh, maybe, maybe, of course, it's, it's one of the reasons also why you have to do with the music here because yeah. when you speak in this kind of theater it's difficult I would say so and I've seen works here where they've had spoken dialogue and it's mm -hmm. it's exactly that it seems unnatural and screaming their lines mm -hmm. to someone who's this close yeah exactly not it, to mention it's very very taxing on the voice to have to emote into a it would also very, be very tricky, I think, if you if you mic'd the dialogue and then turned the microphones off for the singing, it would be really tricky. Yeah. Yeah. Even if some theaters use microphones by then. Mm -hmm. yeah. But what in the dialogue, Kyle, is there anything we learn about Escamillo that the recitatives don't tell us? Um, not really. There's such little dialogue that Escamillo has. Um, the third act is basically the same. Um, in the second act, after the aria... Um, but he he introduces himself to Carmen though in dialogue, doesn't he? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, but this dialogue, for example, is very it's shorter in the music uh, when he says Keletonon, uh, what's your name? Mm -hmm. And she says Carmen. It's a little more flowery. Carmen Sita, uh -huh. But it's basically the same yeah. same sentiment. Same thing, but it's longer and flowery. Yeah. 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 Now, Kyle, you identified your aria to me once as the most famous tune in opera. Arguably, I say. Yeah, okay. Um, I think it's a very accurate statement myself. And, of course, it's the first thing you sing, and it's a number that everyone in the audience definitely very much looks forward to hearing in every performance. So what are the qualities of character that you can show in that piece instantly in, in these words? Because I think we're so intoxicated with the tune that we, we're not always necessarily thinking about what's, what he's actually saying. Mm-hmm, yeah. Well, I like to act it out. I like to give a little... I'm, I'm basically just hopping up on a table and telling a story to these people, like trying to make them understand the, uh, the excitement of, the, of the, the bullfight. And so the two verses are telling, telling that story about how the bull enters and he strikes and, and how the excitement uh, of the, of the, uh, the bullfight... Um, I think it shows his charisma. It can show uh, his uh, how he can work a crowd. They're excited to see him, but he also kind of doesn't stop there. He's, he, he he kind of whoops them into a frenzy, like like the crowd is at the bullfight. Um, it is a difficult task because the first, like you say, that it's the first thing out of your mouth, and it's this aria, and the role very much is about posing and preening and being machismo so if I can I'll try and express just the charisma and um, the re relationship with the crowd and not to mention all the you know looking at the women and, and because he sings about it you know uh, 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 love awaits you yeah, yeah love awaits you you know dark eyes are watching you and he's just kind of I think every production I've ever done during these during these uh, lines, you're looking at different women in the chorus or Carmen herself, ultimately. Um, you are a phenomenal mover on stage, as you showed us Thanks. in your Figaro and especially um, in your Mephistopheles. And uh, movement, as Kyle was saying before, is such an important part of playing the Toreador on the stage. And you've talked to me once before about using movement as an element of the Toreador song, and you'd like to make it sort of dancey. Well, how, what sort of movement is possible in that piece? Well, when I did it, um, a few times we've had a choreographer, um, for instance, in London, where the entire aria was choreographed. And when I first heard it, I thought, uh, it's not going to be, you know, it's going to be kind of, it's not going to be very free. But it was, it was very, um, it, it was, it freed up the singing quite a bit to be able to move so much. Um, you're not, you're not concentrating so much on the voice and you have these movements and it, it makes him, if you can pull it off, it can make him look very, very slick 
and not kind of clumsy as long as you're not tripping over yourself to do the dance moves. Is it the kind of thing that you would actually... Is it movement in that aria that you would see a Toreador making in the bull ring? Is it is a lot of that? <laughs> yeah, sometimes. And occasionally I've had like a, a cape where I'll do a couple moves with the cape. Um, again, to kind of whoop the crowd up. Um, do, do you have to jump on very high tables? Sure, sure. <laughs> in fact, the first time I did this 10 years ago... Three days prior to my opening, I tore my ACL in my knee playing basketball. And so I had three days, and um, there were all these stairs and tables and everything, and I, it went fine. But uh, in retrospect, I, I, you know, I didn't even know it was... I didn't know I had, what I had done. I thought I just kind of tweaked my knee. And so when I finally found out that it, the severity of the injury, I thought, how, I don't know how I did all that stuff, you know, jumping on the tables and... Jumping that. If I had known, I probably would have hurt myself more, but ignorance is bliss. I wanted to ask both of you about this piece. Um, what It's so familiar, as is so much of the music in Carmen, but this piece especially. How does one go about sort of approaching it as a fresh piece, as if one has never heard it before, and then make the audience feel it's, it's a piece that they've never heard before? Oh. For me, it's through the drama. Yeah. I don't think you have ever to look uh, for uh, how to explain. If I think, oh, I have to show something new, it's not good because I, I'm going to do things that... Uh, for me, the aim is to show what the composer wanted. I mean, it's the main thing. But um, the music is so wonderful that even if you know the music, it's like if it was the first time for me each time. But the, the, the orchestration, the singers are different, and it's so complex that each time you can find new things. And I think even for the audience, in the drama, in the music, you can hear, even if you know the, the, the melody, the tunes. Uh. What voice category, Kyle, does this role actually belong to? Is it a bass role, a baritone role, or a bass baritone role? Well... As you as you said, or as Alana said, I think everyone everyone does it: basses, baritones, and bass baritones. I'm a bass baritone. I have I'm a bass basically with high notes, but I wouldn't want to sing up there all day. I'd kill myself. I think it is a bass baritone because it's it's often said that it's too high for basses, too low for baritones. But I'm a bass baritone. It is still difficult behind the, the passaggio and all that. The higher notes. It's a bass baritone. That's the short answer. <laughs> Um, Alain, I was listening to your conducting of the Zitzprobe earlier today, and what I was noticing, which was very gratifying, was that you, the, the Frenchness of this music was very evident, the elegance of it, and I assume that that's a quality that you try very much you to know, communicate. It's, it's very interesting for me because I, I conduct all around the world, and to see how our French music is. Uh, understand then and received in every country. When I conduct in Germany, for example, when I conduct Gounod, like Faust or Romeo Juliet, the, or the, the musicians from the orchestra, they say, yeah, your music is very, how do you say, like a sugar, sweet, you know, sweet. For them, it's like uh, too, too much, you know, because they are, their music, Wagner, Strauss, is much more, you know. You don't have this rubato. But our French rubato is not the same rubato than the Italian rubato you have in Puccini, which for us seems much uh, too much, <laughs> you know. So uh, it's difficult for me to say what is the what is the French taste. Uh, I think uh, we like champagne. Uh, <laughs> uh, is, are we there, have a little of arrogance. Uh, <laughs> are there moments in Carmen though where you feel that the, the whole element of elegance has been somehow neglected, and you try very much to bring it? Yeah, and I think you can find it by the words. It's very important for me what the singers uh, sing. The words they sing. It's very very important. Sometimes you hear. I mean, it's Carmen or Peleas. Uh, it's the same thing for Faust. You hear a sound, and and the word. I, I mean, but the, for me, the, it's much more important to hear first the word and then the sound. You understand? This afternoon, I said to the orchestra, "Listen to the text. Listen to the text." And then, when they listen to the text, they also they play uh, softer, and they listen to. Yeah, for me, it's. The, and I think it it comes from that. The because each composer composes with his own language. And I think when Tchaikovsky composes Onyegin, when you hear the orchestra, you can hear the Russian language. 
And when you hear Italian music, you hear the language of Italian music. And I think in French opera, you hear the music of the language. And Bizet wrote so well the music for the language. You know, every word, uh, you know, votre toast, it's, it's not votre toast. You know, it's really written. And so the, I think the Frenchness of the music comes from the words. Which brings me to my next question. You know, singers all over uh, have such, I feel so challenged by singing the French language. So Kyle, what sounds in French, what particular sounds in French do you find He sings so well the French, it's incredible. He's like a French when he sings, really. Yeah. Wow. No, very, very, no, no, no. It's because many singers say to me, oh, it's so difficult to sing in French because our, you know, we have this on, un, Oh, I mean, it's uh, and you don't have this in English, for example. But he sings very well. Please, well, it's my favorite language to sing. Yeah, you told uh -huh. me. It was the most difficult to learn because, as English speakers, we look at French and certain you know that consonants aren't pronounced. And Chinese is difficult too. You know? Really? <laughs> Chinese. So when you. When you started out, were there particular sounds that you felt were particularly challenging? Uh. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It was the but, you know, because when, um, for a singer, sometimes it's difficult to understand that you have to do a sound which is a little less nice, you know, because, of course, when you do o, a, i, o, it's, you, you look for something beautiful, you know, beautiful singing. And when you do o, a, a, Of course, it cannot be the same, but you don't have to be obsessed by the fact of your voice has to be beautiful. I yeah, I don't think of it. No, you are not like that. I don't think of it in, in those terms as as like nasal vowels being less beautiful. I really don't. Some think singers that think that, but not you. Not but, you but, but when learning it, certainly it was it was exceptionally difficult. I, I'll tell you a short story. We had when I took grammar, French grammar. Our the teacher, she was American. And when we would do dictation, she would read to us. She had a tendency of speaking uh, even uh, in English uh, with uh, this uh, habit of... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so every word that she would say, literally, in French dictation had an E uh at the end. Yes, because when we, when we speak, we always... Uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> But she was American. She was American? Yeah. yeah. She was just... You don't... Yeah. Crazy. <laughs> You don't have in English this type of onomatope that you say all the time in a phrase. You don't have this. Uh, of what? Uh, <laughs> we have all we have all sorts of onomatopoetic words. But what? Which? Oh. What I mean, are you thinking of? When we speak in French, we always stop every two words, and we, um, you know, when you think we say uh, um. Hum. Um, um, we also say you know a lot. You know. You know. Alain, are there are there any mistakes that you hear? internationally from, from uh, singers in French where you'd like to just take them all into a room and say, you say it no, this way. It's true that you, you have mistakes that are often made, uh, I mean, not because they don't know, but like we have words, montagne, you know, it's written M-O-N-T-A. And so you don't have to hear the N, not montagne, ah, yes. and, but montagne. And some singers, of course, they forget and we do montagne, which is for us, I mean, it sounds like a Spanish guy who tries to speak French, but so you have always these uh, little things. But uh, I mean, today the singers are so different than 40 years ago. You know, they are very aware of uh, in every language. I have to say, Italian, German, and so they work hard with coaches to to make it. Uh, and I have to say that I'm very happy now with with this production because everybody is very aware of that. The chorus too; it's very important. And uh, yeah, I'm I'm very happy. Macau, you just said that. French is your favorite language to sing in. Mm -hmm. What makes it so? I don't know. Something, something about it with with my voice. Um, you know, personally speaking, just personal preference. Um, don't know. I love French music also. That's probably a great part of it. Um, you know, people don't necessarily appreciate the physicality and the actual dangers uh, that one can encounter if one is playing. Carmen, Don Jose, Escamillo, for example. Um, when Marilyn Horn was doing Carmen at the Met in a new production, she had to insist that her Don Jose was not going to use a real knife. <laughs> so you and Don Jose deal with knives in Act Three. Mm -hmm. Have you been asked to do the duel with a real knife? Well, m most of them are real knives. They're just not sharpened. Ah. 
so not that usually, that would make mu- that much difference. I mean, yeah. Well, usually they are big chunks of metal. I misunderstood. She wanted a true knife. She did not because her 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 tenor was the late great James McCracken, who got very dramatically involved in his roles, and she knew <laughs> oh, okay. that he was going to be so intense that. She was not going to go near him with a real knife, so she just said, no, no. Um, so, Kyle, how physically violent does the fight get? Well, it's made to look like it is more physically violent than it is uh, uh, actually. But it's on a scale of 1 to 10, 5. Okay. Oh, it's, really? It's not okay. that... It's not too brutal. It's it's brief, which is kind of good for me because I have quite a bit to sing right afterwards. Right. And I'm always out of breath for this. So the question is, how do you do the duel and still watch the conductor and continue to sing well? Well, during uh-huh. the duel, there's no singing. Yeah. Oh, true. Okay. The, just no, before is, it, there okay. is. And, and often there is kind of choreography going on uh, during the mette vous en Right. But not this time. We just kind of circle each other and, you know, watch each other. And but this is one of the good cuts for Escamillo and Josie because originally there was a, a second more. part, even longer. So they had to sing, to fight, to sing again, and to fight right again. And, for the, and now we, we did just one fight. And it's yeah, it's the you. standards. The one you want I'm to show? To. What does one do to, to keep it safe? Well, there's a fight choreographer. Okay, and what is he doing? And it's, he's actually, he's giving us the moves, and then he'll view it and say, no, you need to do this to make it more realistic, and look, you don't have to actually stab, go for the body itself. Um, it's a house of 4,000, you know, 3,800 seats. It's, uh, there's a great distance. So someone's not going to notice if you're stabbing directly at someone's head or if you're slightly downstage. Just like in Tosca where they tell all the gunmen to not actually point the guns at Cavaradossi. Just slightly <laughs> up to the side. Because nobody's going to notice. Um, have you had any tricky moments on stage in the role, whether in the fight or the Toreador song, where things have been sort of interesting in terms of your physical well-being? Mm. Well, you know, it's up to every singer to to speak up if they if they're concerned about their safety and I I don't hesitate to and most people are very good about it and thankfully most of the tenors that I've worked with are not like James McCracken who have you know mm-hmm. they 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 have it under control and they realize that you don't have to absolutely 100% sell that you're enraged you can it can still be controlled um Ten years ago, when I when I did the student matinees here, we had a whip, and that's not in this production. We just changed it slightly, but there was a twelve foot bull whip, and it was real. And there was a point in the duet leading up to the fight where I, I'm spinning it over my head, and I give it a crack to my right, and I think I have a I have a scar here somewhere from. <laughs> I'm sure it's on my right hand here somewhere from the the uh, what do they call it the, the cracker or the, uh, the the tip of it that make, actually makes the the crack. But uh, otherwise, no, I think it's usually from falling because Jose takes, gets the upper hand in the fight just before Carmen comes on and saves me. Uh, and so often it's in the falling. Uh, there was sand covering the stage in Amsterdam, and every time I fell, I'd scrape. Through, through these nice dress pants, I'd scrape, and inevitably I'd be bleeding afterwards. So then finally I just put a bandage on one spot, and that's always where I landed. So... There was sand all over the stage? Yes, there was sand on the stage for the entire show. Wow. Now, we were talking before about, you know, emotional intensity. Alain, I have heard so many performances of the final duet Mm -hmm. where the Carmen and José barely have any voice left at the end because they're so emotional. How do you... Can you work with people so that they can be as intense as you want them to be and they want themselves to be and still keep them vocally healthy? I mean, depends of the singers. If during the rehearsals I see that they have problems, so uh, then I'll try to fi- find solutions with them. But I mean, uh, I'm lucky that I work in theaters where the singers are very good. I have to say, and so usually they know by, by themselves how to resolve these these problems. But uh, I'm here also for to help the singers. If I see that the singer uh, Carmen needs a little bit more time at the end to go to the top notes. Of course, I give her, I accompany her, and uh, 
it's uh, it's very important to conducting is something very strange because you you give the big line you you give the you know you you put everybody on the rails to go on your own interpretation but after you have to be a little free to 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 help them and if you if you want slower faster and but not every conductor is like this Alain is very much aware that it is a collaboration mm-hmm. and I don't know I to make every to make everyone as comfortable as possible whereas some conductors are quite the opposite and they say no 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 this this is the way we're going to do it no you mm-hmm. don't get any extra time for the high note uh, I'm not going to help you there and mm-hmm. it's more about of course, but ego no. for me it's not uh, it's uh, no it's not the theater and the opera it has to be together we have to work together and everybody has to because they are I mean yeah it's true that some conductors they think that they, they know the music and the singers are just you know like uh, right. uh, objects or some, some very bad say, musicians and I always say without us it would be a symphony concert <laughs> yeah um, we have not talked all that much about the chorus which is so vital very in, in Carmen yeah. I wanted to ask you Alain what you most ad- admire in this choral writing okay so when Bizet wrote the chorus uh, parts he wrote something very difficult for the chorus of this period in Paris, and he was very unhappy during the rehearsal with the chorus for many reasons, for the rhythm, because they were always not in tempo, not in rhythm, and because they acted so bad, and he wanted people who acted very well. And he really uh, wrote uh, maybe one of the most difficult chorus parts in the French repertoire of the 19th century. It's much more difficult than Faust or Romeo or all these things. Why? Because it's, it's going very fast. It's uh, like the, the fight between the girls at the beginning, you know, between the Manuelitas and the Carmens. It's very, very fast, and um, the tempo is not easy. The, the same at the beginning of the fourth act. It's very fast, too. I mean, it's a question of tempo, uh, singing, acting, looking at the conductor, hearing the orchestra. I mean, that's why it's, it's very tricky. And but the combination he did at the end between the children, you know, singing the chorus and the and the chorus, it's it's amazing. And you 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 want to see Escamillo coming, you know, you are so excited and it's incredible. And you see Escamillo, Kyle Kettleson, I mean, it's incredible. <laughs> there's there's one chorus. I have, I have two. Uh, there are two pieces of Carmen that I always find that people forget about. Really? And I wanted to ask you what your feeling was about these two pieces. I just find them so distinctive and musically memorable, and nobody ever talks about them. And one of them, well, they both involve the chorus, but one of them is the smoking chorus in the first day. Remember the women come on stage, and they just sit or stand around lazily, and they sing about the smoke wafting its way into the air, and it's musically so beautiful. Yeah, it's interesting, this chorus, because sometimes I think it's done so, so slow that you don't really know what they were smoking, you know, because... (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if you have this type of cigarettes here, but in the... No. No, you don't. So in Spain, there are... (laughs) You know, the cigarettes to make you so happy, and but also slower. And uh, it's interesting when you go to the to see what Bizet wrote. Uh, it's uh, it's a little technique, but it's written in three eight. And um, he added on the score after, please don't conduct in three, but in one, which means that at the beginning the conductor, um, you know, pi pa 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 pa. So he wrote, no, please don't 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 conduct in three, but conduct in one, which is pa da da. So he didn't want something too slow, but you have to to have this feeling of smoking, of course. Of uh, you know, it's so uh, you are in the ambiance. It's incredible. It's so well done. And just after the the men sing, oh Carmen, she's coming. We are so happy. And now the other section that I adore that I wanted to ask you about was um, the Conte Douanier. Uh, ensemble in Act Three. This is um, right before Michaela comes on. It's sort of the sort of calm before the storm in a way. Um, they, it's it's uh, Carmen and her two friends saying we're going to take care of the customs guard. We'll just use our seductiveness, and everybody around them is sort of supporting them in that. So, what about that piece? Which is I've heard sometimes cut 
in no, performance. You cannot cut. So uh, you know that Bizet he had a, uh, I don't I don't know how to say in English. Cahier des charges. Cahier des charges means what you have to compose. So he had to compose an ensemble for quintet. He had to compose an ensemble with chorus. He had to compose a duet. So, I mean, it was like that in the opera comic. So he had that to compose this thing and a funny thing. And and sometimes when you are obliged to compose something, you compose something uh, genuinely. Uh, who cut this? Uh... Oh, some American really? companies do, yeah. Well, stupid. But <laughs> <laughs> no, but yeah, it's one of the... Um, la force, the force of Carmen is to go from something light to something violent. And you need this time of you relax to go on something much worse after, you know, it's very important. And it's light. And if you do all the dynamics written by Bizet, you know, uh, you have three times the same music, but three times different dynamics. First time it's piano, crescendo, and then forte. I mean, each time is different. So little differences. And if you do it, it's, I mean, it's very lively. Um, I wanted to go back to the character of Escamillo for a minute. Um, Kyle, you gave the impression just now that um, when uh, we were talking about it that you didn't think that they were going to serve, that if Carmen had survived uh, Don Jose, that she and Escamillo would have made it as a couple well, no, for I, any length of time. I, no, I think it's, I just wonder if it would last. It, Either way, you could you could look at it either way. The next day, they could break up, and you'd say, "Yeah, that fits." It's Carmen, and yeah, but yeah it's Escamillo. It's an always the same question: uh, Does Carmen love Escamillo or not? You know, in right. every production, you have different ideas from the stage directors. Some things that she really, Carmen really loves Escamillo, and that's why she wants to leave Don Jose. And some things that she loves Don Jose, but she's so proud and she doesn't want to show him that she makes him purpose to make him believe that she, she loves Escamillo. Mm. I'm, I, I think I'm more in this one. Yeah? Uh, I, don't, I think really? Carmen, I really think, I mean, if I was a stage director, I would, I would not because I'm, um, I'm a bad stage director, but um, I really think Carmen loves Don Jose until the end, really. It's so Spanish, you know, when you are proud, gypsy, and you don't say really your feelings. And uh, even, uh, but you're French. French. How do you know it's Spanish? Then? No, but I mean, <laughs> no. when I say when I say Spanish, I mean I mean uh, South European. And uh, I think she loves him until the end, but she doesn't want to show because she's so, so proud. Because uh, she never. She does. wants to make him jealous. That's it. She never does say I hate you. Yeah. Never. We. Oui? No, she never. She never no. says to him. She never says to him in that duet. No, she of never course says, she does. No, yeah, of course, of course. she just says, "I love Escamilla," but she never says, "I hate no, you." No, she says, "Je ne t'aime plus." Yeah, she just says, "I don't love you anymore." But yeah, I don't love it. you, but it sang and composed in a, in a such a way. You know, it's not "Je t'aime plus." It's a, "Je ne t'aime plus." Da, 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 da. You know, we are not sure. <laughs> so, Kyle, do you think of Escamillo as a male Carmen in a way, as far as? his relationships with the opposite sex are concerned? I, yeah, I think so. I think so. They're both kind of, you know, not really, I don't see them, either of them ha having been very serious about any one person. I suppose Carmen and Jose were, but it was always tumultuous. Right. Um, Carmen is really the best known of all French operas, but there's a great deal of French opera that is not being performed. So I just wanted to ask you, Alain, do you have a favorite French work that you would like to see companies on the scale of lyric opera sort of resurrect and look at again? Oh, resurrect? Uh, which one? Oh, there are so many operas. And there are composers maybe you don't know, like Alfred Bruno. I don't know if you know Alfred Bruno. He was one of the most famous composers in the 19th century. He composed the uh, operas on Zola, Zola, Emile Zola. So Zola was the uh, Le Moulin, uh, L'Attaque du Moulin, and all these operas were totally... Uh... Now, there is one opera <laughs> to do, but it's just a joke. It's, uh, we had a composer called Gabriel Dupont in the beginning of the, 19th, uh, the 20th century. He was a friend of Debussy, and, and he wrote an opera which is called La Glue. So, uh, because I thought it would be funny if Altino Glue conducts Glue. But that's <laughs> <laughs> just for what. No, but uh, there are so many things. But, uh, I, no, but I think the masterpieces are known. I don't think there are a French masterpiece uh, hidden somewhere, you know. Mm. Peleas et Melisande is the, the 20th century masterpiece for French opera. Carmen, Faust, Romeo... Uh, 
But of course, Masne, he wrote so many operas. Uh, I don't know which opera of uh, Masne you perform here in America, but uh, I'm sure you do Werther, Manon, Thais. And Thais uh, is now coming back, and that, yes. And that's it. I mean, uh, mm -hmm. you do Le Jongleur de Notre-Dame, no, Don Quixote. Really. Uh, Not Don Quixote. Don Herodiad. There are so many operas yeah. by Masne who are so beautiful. And so. Kyle, do you have a French role that is either in the future or you would like it to be in the future as far as a new French role? A new French role. Not that I'm aware of. I'm, I'm enamored with uh, Mephistopheles and Faust and Mephistopheles and Damnation de Faust and um, ah, the Romeo and are you, you're going to continue to do the Hoffman villains, I suppose. Yeah. You know, there is a wonderful uh, opera by Gounod, which is called Mireille. I told you yes. about Mireille and the character, the Bouvier, Bouvier, which means in French, uh, cowboy. So the character of the baritone is a cowboy, very hmm. beautiful looking, and he wants to marry the soprano, Mireille. But she hates him, and uh, but, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but the big, big, big French baritones like Vandamme and uh, Bakier, they sang this, uh, this yes. uh, role. It's a wonderful role. But Mireille, I don't think you do Mireille. We're not in this country. In, uh, well, we've run out of time, so I want to thank both of you very much indeed, and I want to wish you in Boca Lupa for all the performances Maybe. of Carmen. We take. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, thank you. You've been listening to Backstage at Lyric the podcast that takes you behind the curtain at Lyric Opera of Chicago. For additional interactive content and to order tickets, visit us online at lyricopera.org. Thank you.